Okay, so uh, this morning we'll continue our study on soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And last week, Pastor Ron gave us the introduction, and he was defining the terms and the biblical uses of the terms that are usually affiliated with salvation, like justification and and things of that nature. Uh, Today, I'll set the context of salvation and why mankind is in need of it in the first place. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So the topic, or the title of the topic today, is the need for salvation. And in this topic, I'll deal with two important points, and you'll see that on your handout. Uh, Point number one is man's original state as the image of God. And point number two is man's fall and the distortion of the image of God. Uh, And this whole thing will be part one next week. Uh, Pastor Ron will continue with part two, discussing the effects of the fall on man. Now, I want to begin uh, by reading a passage in Scripture that I think is going to inform the whole topic, which is Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and I'll put it up here. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So looking at the first point, uh, man's original state as the image of God, I'll begin with posing a question. And the question that I pose is, what is man? What is man? What makes man a man? And when I say man, I'm speaking about mankind, both male and female. What makes a human? What makes mankind? Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the different historical views of what constitutes a man. However, I do want to lay out what the Bible teaches about man. First of all, Man is a dichotomy in the sense that he is one, right? You look at him, it's one person, but he is made up of two parts, body and soul. Now, often it's mistaken to believe that man is body, soul, spirit. Uh, Some people say mind, body, and soul, like a trichotomy. However, the prevailing view is that man is body and soul, And the other terms like heart, mind, spirit are used synonymously with soul in the scriptures. And the Bible teaches us that we are to view the nature of man, both body and soul, as a unity and not as a separation or a duality. Uh, In other words, both parts, right, body and soul, as well as every aspect of man, is to be looked at as the whole man. So what makes a man is both body and soul. It's not that the man is just soul and he has this body on top of him that that he's waiting to pull off. What makes a man is both body and soul. An example, look at Genesis 2, 7. I'll put it up here. Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I I like the King James Version. Um, it, translate, it translates it like this. It says, and man became a living soul. In other words, God formed man 
From the dust, he breathed life into his nostrils, making him both body and soul. And this as a whole is the living creature that man is, that man was. Now, why is that important? It's important because as both man, as both body and soul, that's what makes up the constitution of man. And every act that is done by man ought to be seen and understood as an act of the whole man, right? In other words, when a man acts, he does so as both body and soul. Every act of man is seen as an act of the whole man. There'll never be a time when you will act in an ungodly way and blame your actions on your soul. Um, you know, as to remove your guilt, right? Like, my soul made me do it. Uh, that's not a legitimate argument. A man, both body and soul, acts as one. This also does away with the dualism that exists today, where many falsely believe that the body is not an essential part of you. Therefore, the body is often seen as a prison of the real you deep inside. This is the reason why many today don't respect the God-given biological identity that was given to them by God and attempt to modify their bodies in accordance with their corrupt perspectives of themselves. Again, the body and the soul are one. Now, on the contrary, theologians like Herman Bavink and Louis Burkhoff They rightly understood the unity of body and soul and saw the body as a work of art from God, designed with wisdom and beauty. And God designed, or God's design of the body is not, is not supposed to be seen as a prison of the soul, you know, that that your soul that yearns to be free like a ghost, uh, you know, roaming in the earth. The body is uniquely designed to express the soul in perfect harmony. Now, I'm describing man in, in his original state. I'm aware that, the, that things may not seem that way right now, and this is due to the fall. But man in his original state, uh, there, was, there was consistency with the righteous soul that he was given and, and the way that he fleshed it out in his, in his body. Think about this. Even after our body is in the grave and our soul is then presented to the Lord, Scripture tells us that at the resurrection, he will unify our soul back to our bodies, some for corruption and some for glory. But either way, our bodies are united to our souls, and that's how God created us to be. And with that said, we see that both soul and body is what constitutes a man, but in relation to today's topic, there's another part that is essential to what constitutes a man, not just body and soul. According to Scripture, we see uh, in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, uh, that God calls man the image of God. The image of God is an essential part of what it means to be a man and a woman. For example, when you think about what it means to be a musician, there are elements to it that are required for you to be considered a musician. The most obvious element would be the ability to play an instrument and to play it correctly. Secondly, I would assume that you must at least have the ability to read and understand music theoretically. And I say all that to say that there are things that are essential to being what you are. If you want to be a musician, this is what it looks like. If, If you start removing some of the things that are essential to being a musician, you stop being a musician at some point. 
Now, on the contrary, with those qualifications, all those characteristics that make you what you are, you must see that the more you lack those qualities that are essential, the less of it you are. In regards to being a man or a woman, we read in Genesis 1.26 that God creates mankind in his image and after his likeness. Many have interpreted image and likeness as two different things, right? Like God created him in his God created man in his image and also in his likeness. But it seems that the words are being used synonymously and interchangeably and are not referring to two different things, essentially. The word likeness is merely a complementary statement just to sort of emphasize the same idea. And you can see this, and you can see this is the case uh, when you look at verse 27. Um, Let me show you here. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, he created them. So there you see, you know, he didn't use the word likeness. He just used the word image. Uh, It was a summary of what he said before. It's essentially capturing the same idea. We we were all made in, uh, in his image. We find the word image alone in Colossians 3, 10, and likeness alone in James 3, 9. And again, all of these verses refer to man being created in the image of God. And, and by, by that, though, that list of scriptures, the way that they use the words interchangeably uh, simply means that they're, say, they're saying the same thing repeatedly. But what is the writer saying when he says that mankind was created in the image and after the likeness of God? The writer is saying that God is the archetypal and man is the ectypal, right? In other words, God is the real thing and man is a copy. Uh, and when God created man in, in his image, there are characteristics about God that are communicable in the, in the nature of man as he was created. Uh, but this also means, of course, that man not only bears the image of God, right? It's not that he, he can tap into uh, the, an ability or a skill that would allow him to reflect God at some point in his life, what it actually means is that not only, he, not only that he bears the image of God, but that he is the image of God, and that's what he is by nature. In other words, man was created as the image of God on earth. Am I lying? Well, let me show you a verse. First uh, Corinthians eleven seven a says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. So man not only bears the image of God, but he is the image of God. And this has huge implications. It necessarily implies that what it means to be human is to reflect God and godly characteristics in yourself before all of the earth. That's what it means to be human. Now, logically speaking, what, what, when you don't do that, what does that actually mean about you? It means that you're acting less human. When you don't do what God created you to do, you're rebelling against your own nature, in a sense. This meant that Adam and Eve were created with a natural ability to represent God on earth in ways that resemble the attributes of God. And again, to be less of this is like what we were talking about with the musician, to be less of that is to be less human. Uh, 
Same thing with the qualifications of what it means to be a musician. Uh, you can say you're a musician, but if you don't play an instrument or you can't do music, you know, technically you're, you're not a musician. And we see this idea in the following verses in Genesis. I'm going to show you some verses. Um, as God, after creating them, he blesses them and he lays down the mandate that informs their calling and identity as image bearers of God. Let me show you the verse. Uh, Genesis 1, 28 through 30. Can I have somebody read that for me? Amen. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26b. Can someone read that? And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and, all, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Thank you. So, based off of these verses, we see that in relation to being the image of God, man resembles God in his call to subdue the earth and have dominion over other creatures. That's a duty, that's a call for man um, as he was created to be. Now there, there are other functional aspects of God that man was able to reflect. Uh, for example, Adam was made in a volitional, rational, and a moral uh, way where he can reflect God in a moral way. Um, so, so that he was able to reflect God's moral attributes in the world. Uh, things like righteousness, knowledge, holiness, justice, love, faithfulness, these things are characteristics that are part of the nature of man originally. Uh, this was essential to what man was, and in a sense, it's still essential to what man is. Um, obviously, the fall has changed that a bit, but, but that's what he was created to, to be. And on that note, I think it's important to talk about the original state of man's heart when God first created him. When we think of man's heart after the fall, we know almost immediately that man is born in sin and by nature has an inclination towards evil, especially us as Calvinists. It's, it's, it's a quick thing to remember that uh, you know, we were born in sin and that our natural inclination is to do wrong. However, when we think about the state of man before the fall, many often make the mistake of assuming that man's original state was a state of neutrality. That he had no inclination either way. And it's easy to make that mistake because we all know that Adam did have the ability to obey, but he also had the ability to disobey. Therefore, it may seem that he was in a state of neutrality. However, the Bible seems to say otherwise. Uh, Genesis 1.31, in that verse, we see that God made man very good. Not good, but very good. Also in Ecclesiastes 7.29, uh, it talks about the same thing as well. Let me show it to you. Can someone read that? See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So God made man upright. 
And there we see that man's original state, this is the pre-fall, he was made righteous. The New Testament seems to indicate pretty specifically of the nature of man's original condition, especially when it speaks about being renewed in Christ. As if we, as fallen creatures, are being restored back to something that was lost. The question is, what was lost in the fall? Us as Christians, in Christ, are being restored back to something. And that something is not a state of neutrality. Uh, in Christ, we're being restored back into a state of righteousness. And we have, by virtue of Christ's uh, righteous life. In other words, the, the end of what it means to be man is not to go back to neutrality. It's to go back to a state of righteousness. And this was the state that Adam was in. In theology, that position, that state of heart, that will of Adam when he was first created is called original righteousness. Or more specifically, it's called true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. The three elements uh, that, that inform the state of the heart or the will of Adam when he was first created. Uh, again, these three elements constitute the original righteousness which was lost in the fall because of sin, but now is regained in Christ. Uh, this is often called the moral image of God, which man was created to bear naturally. He was inclined to do good naturally. This was Adam's initial state. This doctrine of man being created with original righteousness has been confessed by the church for centuries. Okay, You can find this in pretty much all the Reformed confessions like the Belgic, uh, Westminster, the Savoy, the Second London. I'll just quote the Second London. I won't go through all of them, but the Second London. Actually, we got it up here. Uh, chapter 4 on the, on the doctrine of creation. In paragraph 2, he says, After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit into that life to God for which they were created. And here it is. Being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So the confession states it pretty clear. But more importantly, does the Bible confess it and, and uh, make it clear? And the answer is yes, it does. <laughs> That's why the confession exists. But the Bible does uh, make it clear. And, and we got a few verses here. Can someone read uh, Colossians 3.10? And I put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. And can you do Ephesians as well? And to put on the new self, There you go. You see that the three points that constitute that state of heart that man was created in, which was an original righteousness, the ability and inclination to do good as natural to him as if it were part of his nature. This is the way that God created man. Now, again, these verses speak on the moral state of man in his pre-false state, having an original righteousness as an essential element to being the image of God. Uh, what it means to bear the image was to simply do what you were created to do. Man was called to bear God's image. All he had to do was be himself, in a sense. 
Uh, but in summary, what does this all mean? Why am I talking about this? This means that being created in the image of God, what that meant, being fruitful to the glory of God, right? Subduing the earth to the glory of God. Those are the things that, that's what it means to be the image bearer. Uh, having dominion over all creation to the glory of God and living in a state of knowledge, true righteousness, and holiness to the glory of God. That's what it meant to bear the image of God. And these traits are what it means to be essentially human. And these traits have not been abolished. In other words, even though we are experiencing the results of the fall, the effects of the fall, the call for mankind to be that has never left. In other words, you can't escape that role because that's what it means to be human. The problem is that we fail all the time. Consider what mankind is today. And you should immediately get a sense that we've departed from that design. In other words, if you observe all creation, think about everything that God created under the earth. You'll notice that the mountains are tall and rocky, doing what mountains do. The birds are soaring in the air, doing what birds do. The trees are flourishing high and fruitful, doing what trees do. And all of creation is being what creation was called to be by God. And we read that in the Psalms, right? Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all hills, uh, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. And you read in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, God's creation is declaring the glories of God, doing what they were called to do. But look at man. What does it say about man? Someone read that. Amen. So creation is praising God in being what creation was called to be. And then when we look at man, Scripture says no one is righteous. All have turned aside. No one seeks after God. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asses under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. That means that the path that we create, the paths that we walk in, are pure ruin and misery. And the way of peace we have not known. <clears throat> and this, in this point, we have to ask, you know, how did mankind come to this point? And that leads to my second point on the uh, worksheet. Man's fall and the distortion of the image of God. Uh, 
in the fall story, right, in the fall narrative that we see in Genesis 3, you'll notice that all of a sudden, the creation order of headship is suddenly reversed. That's my boy. (laughs) First of all, uh, think about the creation order, the headship, who's in charge, who's not. It ought to be obvious that God is supreme head over all. And God then creates man, right? So look, just imagine that order. God is on top. God then creates man to rule over creation. And then out of man, he makes a woman to be his helper. And together they have dominion over creatures. But all of a sudden in Genesis 3, that headship becomes distorted. Uh, Look at Genesis 3, 1 through 9. Can someone read that? these as well. So we see a creature, right, namely the serpent, the creature dominate over mankind. That's opposite, right, of the headship order. A creature comes in and he tempts the woman to disobey God's command not to eat of the fruit. The woman then convinces the man to eat with her. And in that moment, Adam fails in his headship. And finally, in Adam's failure to obey the Lord's command, as he himself partakes of the sin, Adam essentially disregards the headship and lordship of God. And in this picture, we have a reverse of the created order of headship, creature over God. And this is essentially what Paul was talking about in Romans 1, 24 and 25, where he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I just want to make an emphasis on the serve the creature rather than the creator. Um, I think that's, that's very important. This service to creature rather than creator is what we call idolatry, which is the root or which is a root, or, or actually the primary root of every sin and lifestyle of disobedience to God. God's word is clear and always has been clear, and the problem is when man refuses to follow, he is then exchanging the truth for a lie and serving creature rather than creator. 
Now, what makes this even more interesting is that Adam, like we spoke about a few minutes ago, Adam was created good, which means that he had a natural inclination to do what was morally right. Their minds were in a state of pure clarity and uninterrupted knowledge that was not at all clouded with the influence of sin as our minds are now post-fall. Therefore, the desire to disobey God by eating of the tree that God had clearly forbidden would have taken an extra effort. In other words, uh, you would almost have to go out of your way to disobey God in that kind of moral state. This means that the fall was not an accident, right? Adam and Eve didn't slip up. They didn't stumble into sin. They consciously committed cosmic treason against God. Now, going back to the image of God, the question that we ought to ask is, what was Adam supposed to do in that situation as a true image bearer of God? Think about the the situation in the garden with the tree. God told them not to eat of it. We have the scene where the serpent comes in and deceives uh, his wife, Eve. Now, as an image bearer, what was Adam to do? What was he supposed to do if he were to be consistent with his nature? Well, we remember that what it means to bear the image of God was to have dominion over all creation. And we remember that righteousness and holiness is also essential. We also see the responsibility that was given to Adam in Genesis 2.15. Adam was given this responsibility. It says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and what? To keep it. And as God's image bearer, Commanded to keep the garden, Adam should have not allowed the serpent, to, the serpent to slip in. If by then, for example, this is hypothetically, what if Adam at that point had already multiplied, as was commanded by God, right, to be fruitful and multiply, uh, Adam would have had to protect not only his wife, but his children uh, from the deceit of the serpent. This would mean that Adam would have had to train his children and guard the family to obey God and his word and to uh, be cautious of anyone intruding. It would, it, would, it, would have to, it would have to have been required of Adam to act as a prophet, right? Preaching God's word, remembering God's word, proclaiming God's word within his family. He would have to act as a priest. He would have to act as a, as a king. All these roles Adam had, would, would have had to Uh, be in charge of and and take possession of uh, in order for that scene to be successful. If the goal that God had for Adam was to spread God's glory through the face of the earth, this would mean that Adam would have had to be faithful beginning in the garden and then eventually expanding the commission throughout the world, right? So God placed Adam in the garden, not just to keep him in the garden, but, but to guard the garden, keep the garden, and eventually spread God's glory as an image bearer all over the world. In other words, the goal was that God's glory through Adam would shine all over the world. And it began in the garden, right? God put him in the garden. He told him to keep it, to guard it, to protect it. And as Adam was commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, the goal was that through Adam and his posterity, uh, the glory of God would fill all of the earth. But if Adam could not pass even the, the initial probation period of uh, 
guarding the, the garden, uh, protecting his wife and his family from false teaching, right? We saw the serpent slip in and convince the, uh, his spouse. Uh, otherwise, he, he, he told them things that God did not say. And as the image bearer, Adam, was supposed to be in charge, protect his family, and crush the head of the serpent. Uh, I love what Greg Beale says. He's a professor of uh, New Testament and biblical theology at Westminster. And I want to read a quote. Um, he, he speaks on this subject very well. He says this, Adam was to be God's obedient servant in maintaining both the physical and the spiritual welfare of the garden abode, which included dutifully keeping evil influences from invading the arboreal sanctuary. In fact, the physical and spiritual dimensions of Adam's responsibility in relation to the Genesis 1 commission are apparent from the recognition that Adam was like a primordial priest serving in a primeval temple. Adam was to be like Israel's later priests, who both physically protected the temple and spiritually were to be the experts in the recollection, interpretation, and application of God's word in the Torah. Accordingly, essential to Adam and Eve's raising of their children was spiritual instruction in God's word that the parents themselves were to remember and to pass on. In this respect, it's apparent that knowing and being obedient to God's word was crucial in order to carry out the task that was given to Adam in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And disobedience to it would lead to failure, and that's exactly what we saw. Thus, knowing God's will, as expressed in his word of command, is part of the functional manner in which humanity was to reflect the divine image, which assumes that Adam was created with a rational and moral capacity to comprehend and carry out such a command. The first two humans were to think God's thoughts after him. That's what they were called to do. Thus, Adam and his wife's knowledge of God also included remembering God's word addressed to Adam, which Adam's wife failed to recall when you, when, uh, in the fall in Genesis 3. So, you know, we can look at Eve and say, man, she messed it up for the whole family, but essentially it was Adam's fault. Adam was called to protect, to keep the garden. He was, he was called to protect his family. He was called to subdue and have dominion. Um, his wife was his helper. If they would have been obedient to God's word, if he would have made it a habit to recall God's word, let's just say hypothetically, if they had, if they had kids in the garden already, as they obey to be, to, to, to be fruitful and multiply, it was still Adam's responsibility to make sure that his household and the garden that he was meant to, kept, to, to, to keep uh, be guarded from the serpent and the lies um, that the serpent had brought in. And here we're able to see how man in his sin distorts the image of God in them. Therefore, Adam and all his posterity, meaning all his children or anyone who was born after him, they also received the results of this corruption of sin. Immediately after the first sin committed by Adam, it resulted in the total depravity of human nature. This sin spread through the entire man, right? Leaving no part of his nature untouched, corrupting every power and faculty of the body and the soul. 
Look at some verses. Uh, someone read Genesis 6, 5. You can see it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. Someone read Psalm 14, 3. And Romans 7.18. Come and take that. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Hmm. Also, immediately after the first sin, there was a loss of communion with God. Mankind broke away from the real source of life and blessedness and uh, the result was a condition of spiritual death as well as death in the flesh. Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 3, put it up here, I'll read it. says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And, and again, this is the state of man after the fall. And the confessions state that we, the way that they stated in, in most of the Reformed confessions, it states that man received both the guilt of Adam's sin and the corrupt nature, meaning you... Uh, by virtue of being in Adam, you also receive the guilt of that one sin that was committed by Adam. There was a real union. In a sense, it's a bit mysterious, but there, was, there is a real union between you and Adam in, in, in such a real sense that it was as if you were present and you yourself committed that moral or that immoral act of disobedience to God. So uh, you receive Adam's guilt, but you also received his corrupt nature. This means that we're both guilty before God naturally, and our wills are imprisoned with an inclination to desire sin. Now, uh, in conclusion, in regards to the image of God, we see throughout Scripture that man never stops being image bearers of God even after the fall. There are many verses that identify man as image bearers even after the fall. Like James 3.9 says that we are the image of God. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says that we're the image of God. And this is after the fall. So we, we don't stop being image bearers. The problem is that because of sin, man is spreading a distorted image of God throughout the world. So it, it's not a question of whether you want to bear image bear God's image or not, right? It's not a question of, well, I, you know, I'm not a Christian, so I don't want to bear God's image. You don't actually have a choice. Uh, in reality, you can't escape this mandate. You were created to. That's what it means to be human. And to deny and reject this is to offer your body up in submission to your own desires and is a complete rejection of God and his design. It's saying that I, I, I want to resemble another image, it's what it means to be less human. And God will judge each and every person on this basis. Um, have you 
lived according to the image of God? Have you been consistent with the true image of God? Um, which, when you open up the Bible and you look at the law of God, you can see the characteristics of God, what he calls holy, what he hates, what he loves. Uh, and if your life is inconsistent with that, even, even a little bit, you've failed God. You have, you have ceased to bear God's image correctly, and you're, you're distorting the image of God that you were called to, to bear. Now, uh, I'm tempted to end on a negative note, but, uh, and the reason why is because the, the title is The Need for Salvation. So, not that you don't know the solution, um, but, you know, I was tempted to just leave it there. But I'm, I'm going to give the solution to that. And the solution to the distorted, um, you know, image of God is the following. I'll, I'll explain it here. Here's the solution. If you feel yourself, that you have failed to reflect God in your life, God calls you to repent, right? Because God has revealed his moral character and his law in which we have, fallen, we have failed to keep. Uh, this is why mankind is without excuse. Um, and, and mankind is in a desperate need for a savior. Now, Jesus Christ, the son of God, has entered the realm of man and was for us a better Adam, Right? Adam failed uh, to, to live consistent with the true image of God, and Jesus did not fail. Uh, in fact, the scriptures say that Jesus was the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus, the last Adam, perfectly reflected the image of God in his life, and he even died in our place as a sacrifice for our failures, or, or the, the correct term is our sins. And if you unite to Jesus, the perfect image of God, your connection to Adam will be counted as dead. And your connection to Christ, by faith, will save you. And in Christ, God will guarantee the restoration of your body and your soul. He would bring you back to that state and more because the scripture says that he'll restore you and he'll further clothe you. You will be placed in an eternal state where you can never uh, fall away from uh, that uh, state of will, where um, in that eternal state, in that glor glorified body state, you, you won't have any inclination towards evil, nor will, they be, will there be a forbidden fruit. God would give you the garden. In fact, God would give you the tree of life, and you would be placed in a perfect uh, state in which you cannot fall away from him again. And as, as, uh, as humans and as God has revealed his, his salvation to us, we're able to experience a taste of that eternal life now. Um, I'm not saying that things go good when you become saved and all of a sudden uh, life gets easier, but you do, uh, your, your perspectives change. They become more of an eternal perspective. You you are, um, you, you taste satisfaction in God, although oftentimes uh, sin gets in the way and that gets interrupted by the sin that is still present in the world and even in your own flesh. But you do get a taste of that eternal life, that new life, that new creation life uh, when you come to Christ and you're united with him. And again, being united in Christ means the death of Adam in you. 
uh, you cut ties with that original nature. Uh, and that, for me, is, is a big deal. In Christ, God will guarantee the restoration of your body and soul. And this is the hope of the believer. That Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross the end of sin and the end of death and the reign of everlasting life. And so, uh, in conclusion, may, may our need for uh, salvation, may that need be felt every day, and may our assurance of salvation rest in the work of Christ, because he, he's accomplished all these things for us. Um, amen. So, any questions or any thoughts on anything that we discussed? Sir? I want to say, um, in, in Romans 5, being that Paul Mm-hmm. Um, it really it, it helps to see what Adam should have done by looking at what Christ did. That's right. So all the ways in which Adam failed, Christ succeeded. So Amen. some of those things aren't said explicitly um, in Genesis of, of Adam, mm-hmm. but um, because Christ is the second Adam, yeah. there are implications for that for what he should have done, mm-hmm. um, which helps to see that um, federal headship. Right. Adam is a federal man, and Christ is a federal man. Amen. And I'm glad you brought that up because there's so many things, like when you look in the Old Testament and you consider Israel um, when they were in the wilderness and how much they sinned and grumbled against God and, and, and were, were really dependent on the physical aspects of this world, then all of a sudden you see Christ before his ministry in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, no food, totally dependent on uh, the Spirit of God. And you see that Jesus was a better Israel. I mean, he did where we failed. And that, that's, just, that's just excellent to see uh, Christ as the second, the last Adam, uh, fulfilling the areas where we lacked, where Adam lacked. That's good. There's a lot of that uh, throughout scriptures. If you search the Old Testament and you parallel it with Jesus Christ and his life, you'll see, um, for example, in... Uh, in, in the uh, Mount Sinai when the law was given and uh, you have Jesus Christ on the mountain giving, the, uh, giving his sermon on the mount, um, you see where in comparison to the two, you see where one brought death and one brought life. Um, you know, all the attempts of, of a fruitful life, uh, an eternal life, from man and his hands and his, his, his ways in comparison to Jesus Christ, um, you see that really our hope can only be found in, in Christ and, his, and the fulfillment of it all in his life, death, and resurrection. Amen. So it's, it's glorious truth. Anything else? We're good on time. So we'll... Mm-hmm. I would say so uh, only in the sense where, in other words, what it means to be man, uh, even as a woman, I would say that they still share in that image. Um, I I, I would say that uh, because man was made in the image and woman was made after man, um, I would I would still consider both of them, male and female, as image bearers of God, for the mere fact that that women were created from man, and man's nature is 
that which bears the image of God. So I, I, I wouldn't say that women don't bear the image of God at all. Um, you know, but I don't want to get too controversial. I know there's women here ready to beat me up, but they're like, what are you going to say about me? Um, yeah, I know. I know. Um, no, I, I, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's pretty much understood. I mean, I, I can only speak from the Reformed uh, tradition. I, yeah, I don't know what these other traditions speak of, but I, I think it's biblical, and I think from the Reformed tradition, it's, it's consistent to say that women are image bearers of God. Um, and I'm really confident in that. I don't think that the scriptures say anything else, even though they were created after man or, or from man. Um, but it, it simply implies that uh, if man was created in the image of God and women were created from man, uh, they both bear the image. So now if women were... Uh, Never mind, I'm not going to say that. Forget it. <laughs> Protecting myself. No, if, if, if women were created from something else, then of course. Then they, they, but they're created uh, from man, and man was, was created in the image of God. So therefore, both of them uh, are image bearers. Yeah. And, and they're not lesser image bearers uh, because they're created from the same, you know, in the same kind, of the same kind. Not to get too sidetracked, but yeah. There is this, there is this uh, difference in headship, however, that um, you'll notice that Eve was the first to eat from the, the tree that was forbidden. And although she, she, she received the, the um, repercussions and she received the results from the fall, just like Adam did, God was looking for Adam. Uh, Adam was the federal head of all mankind, not Eve. And so you see there's a distinction there between the roles of their headship. Um, I don't know if, if Eve were to be the only one to, to sin and Adam didn't. I don't know if the results would be the same. I would still think so because Adam was still responsible for Eve. So in some sense, there's sin there. Um, but there is, a, there is a difference between headship there. We all fell because Adam fell, not necessarily because Eve fell. But they both could be the same thing. I don't know. Anyone else? Yeah? Yeah, it's encouraging that man and woman now are being sanctified mm -hmm. um, and becoming more and more to the right representative Yes. Um, the right image of God. So the same way that we fell through, through Christ, now we're being sanctified back to that, that correct image. Right. And one day we'll be that, that perfect image. Amen. Um, so I don't know, it's just encouraging to think on that. Yeah. Amen. I th that's the hope of mankind. If, you, if you're a sinner, I mean, I don't know if you are, but I know I am. Um, that's the hope for me. Like, I look forward to the day that that restoration is full, the consummation is full. So God is, is restoring me, and then he's doing it with the whole church collectively. That's what it means that God is coming back for a pure bride. It doesn't mean that everyone has to be perfect, but what he means is that he's redeeming his people, his church. And, and when that number is full, his bride is pure by virtue of Jesus' blood. Um, he's coming back to get a spotless bride. But God is restoring us, and he's doing that with the church as well. And then through the church, he's doing that with the whole world, uh, through the church. But, yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Um, when, when you talk about this, like, in the kind of conversation for people, um, they say, well, I wasn't, how can God hold me responsible for Adam's mm -hmm. sin? And um, the fact that you sinned shows that you would have done no different than Absolutely. Adam. I mean, every yeah. time you sin, you align yourself with Adam. Absolutely. Um, and for the one who wants to claim uh, Christ as a federal head, you have to be yeah. And the truth that Adam was your federal head. It doesn't right. make sense. You can't be consistent and say, right. well, that's that's not right. If, 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 if you're not going to look at Christ and say, well, that's not right. Mm -hmm. you know, if Adam represents you, yeah. um, and in that way that your federal head, then Christ can represent you too. So Amen. it goes both ways. Yeah. See yourself in Adam and see yourself in Christ. That's right. Believers. Yeah, that's a helpful picture. Um, the way that we're in Christ is the way that we were in Adam in a sense. That connection sometimes is, is it's kind of weird. I've I've heard some crazy stuff like, and I don't want to be too judgmental. If they're right, I'm going to be feel real stupid. But um, I've I've heard like you you if you buy like a, a systematic theology, you'll see in that on that specific subject of how were we counted with Adam and what sense was there a connection there. Some theologians have said that we were there present, in some sense we were in the loins of Adam. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I, I, I prefer the concept of federal headship uh, because when you look at in, in Scripture in the Old Testament and you see how God would judge nations, he wouldn't just judge individuals. I mean, he did. But I, I think we here in, in, in America and in the West, like we, um, we're so individualistic that we, we, we hate this idea that you know, someone else represented us in a wrong way, and, and, and we, we even tell ourselves, like, no, that's him, that's not me. Like, at work, I do the same thing. When somebody tells me, I don't like this, you guys need to change, I'm like, I don't make the rules, I just work here. But, <laughs> but in a real sense, I, my job is to represent the company or, or to represent where I work. And so I, ha I have to learn how to own up to some of these things. And uh, I think in the same way, it, it just sounds crazy to us to, to, to think that in some sense um, we were counted with Adam and he was our federal head. But I think that's, that, that seems to be most consistent with how God worked with people, how God would judge a nation, things like that. So, but some say that we were in the loins of uh, Adam. I don't know, maybe. That's just kind of whatever, you know. All right. I got, time. I got one minute. Any, any other last comments or questions? If not, well, thank you guys. Let me go ahead and pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for revealing our need for salvation, Lord. Uh, you could have left us in the dark, yet you chose to reveal these truths to us, and for that we're uh, eternally grateful. As sinful people, uh, we failed in what is essentially human, which is to bear your image without distortion. And we thank you for sending Christ, your perfect imprint, in him, you have made us right. In him, you will restore us. And in him, you've guaranteed an eternity united with you. And Father, for this, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.